We're given a story of birds and bees, where two people fall in love, and out of their love blooms a perfect little creature. But I know too many people for whom every step of that is not a fairy tale. Finding a partner, keeping a partner, fertility treatments, miscarriages. Perhaps family is bigger, wider than we've been told. It is a story of belonging and loss and courageous love. And perhaps it involves learning to love a stranger. Sarah Santillis is a writer, teacher, and scholar of religion, so you know, my very favorite kind of person. She earned a bachelor's degree at Yale and master's and doctoral degrees at Harvard. She is the co-founder of the Alliance of Idaho, which works to protect the human rights of immigrants. And she is the author of a stunning and haunting memoir called Stranger Care, a memoir of loving what isn't ours. Sarah, it is a joy to finally be talking with you today. Thank you so much, Kate. I'm thrilled to be here. And your introduction just gave me goosebumps. It was so so (laughs) generous. Thank you. So beautiful. You and your husband, Eric, had pretty fundamental uh, existential disagreements when it came to deciding to be a parent. What was what was at odds or complementary about your views? Well, I think I'd always, I, I'm a feminist. I think of myself as a feminist. I think of myself as a strong person who does what she wants and navigates the world with power and courage. Uh, but when it came to motherhood, I really couldn't admit to myself that it was my deepest longing. It took me mm. a long time to say out loud, I want to be a mother. I want to have a baby. And when I finally did admit that to my partner, I discovered I was married to an environmentalist who didn't want to bring another human onto the planet. He thought that um, there were already, you know, there's 500,000 children in foster care in the United States, and there's 100,000 of those who need permanent homes somewhere Mm -hmm. to live. And he thought, why do we need to make a new child when there's so many children in the world who need a safe place to be? And we can be one, we can be that safe place. Um, So it took, it took me a long time to get to where he was, and I got there for different reasons. You know, I went to therapy to talk about it, and the question that was running through my mind is, do I want to have a baby? Do I want to have a baby? Do I want to have a baby? And yeah. someday that switched to, do I want to be a parent? And I realized that I didn't, I didn't need to be pregnant. I didn't need to have some part of my DNA out in the world. Um, and so foster care became our, our common ground. We did it for different reasons. He did it because he wants to live in a world where we tend the earth. And I did it because I want to live in a world where we tend one another. So it became this this shared place where we could navigate the different ways we understand the world and the different roles we think humans play in making the world the way it is. Sometimes I like to think about the sort of prevailing myths we have, accidental or on purpose, as being different kinds of prosperity gospels, Mm -hmm. like things that will just somehow make more, but usually because we are good. Because we we did it in the right way, or we had the. Mm. I'm a big fan of like, but I had the right intentions. I have a lot of great intentions, but the, <laughs> the, the DMV does not care, does not care about my, about my intentions. I talk to a lot of parents who are trying to manage the the heartbreak of the of this of of the stories of that they have of parenthood. It just kind of made me wonder: is there like a is there a foster parent prosperity gospel? Wow. Hmm. I love your mind. Um, I think the version of, I think the version of that is like a set, the sacrificial story of the foster yeah. parent um, who 
should never want to keep what isn't theirs and should always be going for reunification um, and has no limits, uh, not, not necessarily no limits on love. I feel like um, there's a way that the expectation is that you will temper your attachment and your love to the children that you bring into your home, knowing that they will leave. But there's this myth of the self-sacrificing, selfless, I've had 150 foster kids and, and how beautiful. I mean, we need people who will do that. The myth is that kind of keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Your heartbreak doesn't matter. Your heartbreak doesn't matter. Your heartbreak doesn't matter. And there's something really beautiful about that and something really dangerous as well. Yes. Yeah, that you can, that you give so freely. You never need to take, you never need to keep. They advise you to keep a list of your, of your limits by the phone because you get a call and you have about three to five minutes to say yes or no. I mean, it's, not a, it's very fast. They call and they say, there's a child who's been taken into care. We know X, Y, Z. Um, can you welcome him? Can you welcome her? Or we have a sibling set. That's the language for siblings, for uh, brothers and sisters. We know X, Y, Z. Can you welcome them? The way you think about limits, like are you as a foster parent allowed to have limits, sounds like it was almost concretized almost right away. There's this home study process that's very mm-hmm. invasive and it, it, it asks people to answer some very difficult questions. Like uh, it's like a long list of qualities that the social worker asked if you and your husband would be willing to accept into your home, but like like schizophrenia or cruelty to animals. It seems like it would be so hard to imagine how limitless you need to be. Like, what is the, what is the math on that when, mm-hmm. you know, everything in our, I don't know, everything in the way that we, we think about whether something is worth doing, we, like, that's the language we would use is we like, mm-hmm. we try to figure out what value it would have to us. But but they're asking you almost right away, like, how much can you handle? Like, mm-hmm. let's, let's set a number. Mm-hmm. And, and never having experienced those things, how can you know? You know, it's interesting now to look back and some of the things that we were very afraid of um, were things that we said yes to when we welcomed home this three-day-old baby girl, but we had no idea, you know, and, yeah. and it wasn't anything to be afraid of, actually. The things that we would have set limits had we known, yeah. had we known more about about this child, had we known more about her background, we probably would have said no. But, yeah. but we didn't say no because we didn't know that information. So we said yes, and the things that we were afraid of, we didn't need to be afraid of. When you, when you did get that phone call for a three-day-old little baby named Coco, and they put her delicate five-pound little frame in your arms, you felt the rightness of it. You felt such an instant love. What an incredible thing to feel magic Mm -hmm. with a stranger. It was immediate. I think um, one of the things I had underestimated about being a foster parent was how immediate the attachment would be and how fierce. Um, You know, they talk about a lot in foster care that your, your job is to be family and home as long as the child needs it until they can be reunified with their biological parent. What they don't tell you is sometimes you're going to have to hand the child back to a situation that you don't think is safe. 
the moment that she was placed in my arms, she weighed just under five pounds. She was tiny. She was wearing this little pink outfit that said world's best little sister. (laughs) And um, I I felt, oh, you know, she's not ours, but we belong to each other. Mm. And Eric's attachment was just as immediate and just as fierce. Um, He felt like if anyone comes near her, I will destroy them. It was this instinctual um, Papa Bear kind of uh, totally ability to do violence that, you know, he's a pacifist, so it surprised him. Um, But we loved her right away. She she belonged to us right away. We belonged Mm -hmm. to her right away. Sounds like those first few hours and days you were like piecing together a mystery about who she was that you could only learn bits and pieces about her birth and her mom. And I imagine it was really complicated to figure out like, how much should I give myself over to this person and story that I just can't, I just can't know. And your friend Katie gave you the most Mm -hmm. spectacular advice that I think that I will remember (laughs) forever. She said, uh, it's never wrong to choose love. The way she described um, in loveness mm. as this beautiful totalizing thing, like diving into water. Mm-hmm. That sounds like um, that sounds like a choice. It also sounds like capitulation. Like it was <laughs> just this gorgeous, <laughs> inevitable thing. I mean, you know, it's so being with an infant, it's so intimate. You're up with them every two hours. You're feeding them, changing them, holding them, loving them, snuggling them. It's so people tend to think of foster care as babysitting, but it's not. It's parenting. It's yeah. parenting. It's intimate, physical parenting. It's all consuming. Yeah. It's just yeah. like uh, being a parent to a child. But luckily, I had two incredible guides. One was Katie, who's a poet and who had given birth to a very premature baby. And uh, she talked to me about that experience of not knowing if her child was going to live or die and leaving the intensive care unit and asking herself, am I in or, or am I out? And realizing she had to choose love and love her child as long as that child survived with her. And the other was my friend, Emily Rapp Black. Her son uh, died before he turned three of mm-hmm. Tay Sachs. And she was so generous in her ability to stand next to me. Um, as I navigated this impending loss. And, and she said the same thing. You have to choose love. You have to love them as long as they're with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece of advice she gave me was to tend my marriage, which I thought was interesting. I called her one day in, in tears about what was happening in the foster care system. And I said, I need your help. I know it's not the same. I know she's not dying, but it feels like that. And um, she said, uh, tend, tend your marriage. Like she meant, Maybe just make sure you have a foundation under you too and make sure you've got all the things that hold you up. Is that what she was hoping for? Well, she was saying that um, almost all marriages dissolve after the loss of a child. I think the percentage is like 90% or something. It's really high. Um, And she had experienced the implosion of her own marriage after her son Ronan died. Um, And so she wanted to make sure that we had the tools that we needed to navigate the grief that was ahead of us. Um, and that it would bring us closer instead of tearing us apart. And it was really important advice because Eric and I decided that that's what we wanted. We wanted to walk this together, even though our grief looked different, even though our worldview looked different, even though our response to what was happening looked different. We wanted it to, to bring us closer instead of further apart. 
we have a lot of listeners in this beautiful community that are like you, real, you know, big hearted do-gooders. They're like, they turn toward suffering in the world and often professionally. So we have a lot of like social workers and pastors and doctors and teachers and stuff and people who see brokenness up close every day. Mm. And, and, you know, it, it struck me in learning about your story that there's such an intense cost in being close to that much pain that in the foster system, it must create a lot of burnout, a lot of secondary mm -hmm. trauma that helpers become hurt. And at the same time, I mean, your experience with people who work in the foster system was also very jarring. Dropped balls, blatant lies, unreturned phone calls. Like the, it sounds like the system was very and is unfairly and unbelievably taxed. And also that there was a tremendous cost to the mistakes that were made and that you were seeing the, the brokenness of all that up really close. I had extreme rage about the what I was encountering in the foster care system, like full bodied rage. <laughs> I haven't yeah. really felt that kind of like it wants your skin wants to come off kind of rage, like helplessness, despair and rage mixed, which is a very dangerous cocktail. Um, and the limit that I had to learn was to try on the page in stranger care to be generous towards those people in the foster care system who are, I think, big hearted people who are traumatized and under-resourced and under-supported. And um, I don't think that they understand themselves as traumatized. You know, I, I think they see the worst that we do to one another over and over and over again, the worst that we do to children. And there's a part of themselves that they have to turn off and then align with the system itself in order to keep some sliver of sanity. But I, I just kept thinking over and over, here I am, I'm a white woman, overeducated, I have financial means, I speak English, I'm cisgendered, I'm in a heterosexual marriage, and I struggled to navigate this system. What is it like to navigate the system as a poor person, as a biological parent who struggles with addiction, someone who struggles with mental illness, as a person of color? And what is it like to navigate this system as a child? I couldn't navigate it as an adult. So even though you know the heartache that I experienced was intense, um, I just kept remembering it's it's not about me. It's about these children who are trapped in this system, who are perhaps some of the most vulnerable people in our nation. And will we be a country that takes care of them or not? I don't think it's possible to really experience a tragedy without really having a strong category of institutional and, and structural evil. Mm -hmm. And just like a like by which I mean not, you know, bad apples or evil people, but harm that is perpetuated in the most wonderfully boring ways in unjust paperwork and unfair costs and under under-resourced people who are absolutely deserve better and just the way that like it collapses in on the weakest people that's what mm -hmm. i mean by institutional evil and i mm -hmm. believe in it as a real thing that haunts the earth i called the book stranger care because that's what we were called in the foster care system we were non-relative care providers or stranger care, which is so alienating, such an alienating term for this very intimate, beautiful, heart-expanding task. And there's a way that this bureaucracy treated us as strangers all the way through. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they were done with us, they were done with us. We were blocked from court. We were blocked from any additional information. 
we we could have no access to anything or anyone. We were we were not useful anymore to them. Wow. And so we were cast aside as nothing, as irrelevant. Yeah. As if your love didn't add up to so much more and to invisible ties. When I was um worried about not being able to keep being my son's mom, mm-hmm. being really sick. And um someone said to me, Oh, you're um you're like you're in the foundation. The Kate, the the foundation's not the part that gets to show. Oh. And like to not be able to to like put your hand up and say, like, I'm in the foundation. Like I'm I'm right there for this kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny. Sometimes what people said was such a bomb to me. And then other times, you know, they would say, you were there for the first year of her life. You know, you, you're in her cells, you taught her heart how to, how to regulate and beat. You taught her breath how to beat, you know, and I know now I've done a lot of reading about the brain and we gave her the ability to attach and the ability to trust and the ability to feel safe in the world. Um, but when they would say that to me, it didn't feel like a bomb at all. It felt like, it felt to me like they were treating it like she wasn't our child, you know, that she was always going to leave. And so we should just feel lucky that we got to do that. I can get there now, but I've realized, you know, a lot of the things that we say to people in crisis, like to you, like a mother who's, who was sick and who was worried about not getting to parent her child or to a foster parent who's worried about a child leaving or someone whose partner has died. Um, I think we get so afraid of loss that the things we say are designed to make us feel better, but they don't make the other people feel better. Yes. The, um, at least you, any sentence that starts there is going to be just a punch in the esophagus. (laughs) You know, I, I, I kept thinking of the, the the terrible things people say that are so specific to to the story of love in the in foster care, and I wondered if we could maybe add a few more. Like, um, but you don't want babies of your own. Oh, good God! Like, it's not even me in reading that. Just as if there's a like a hierarchy of love, and you you picked the you picked the lower ones on the list. Mm-hmm. Don't you want babies of your own? People would say, oh, I thought about fostering or I thought about adopting, but I always wanted babies of my own. As if any child, you know, any child we bring into our house is our own. And also every child we bring into our house doesn't belong to us. We're all raising strangers. We're all, we're all raising these mysterious babies or children or adults um, that we, you know, who our job is to help them become who, who they're meant to be, not who we think they're supposed to be. Or, you know, I hate those shirts that say like uh, mini me or like copy paste. Oh, it is so my little clone. Oh, look, my (laughs) self-expression is out in the world. Oh, stop having your own personality. (laughs) I know just the narcissism of that. And the way we've been taught to think about parenting is very narcissistic. This idea that it has to do with genes or, uh, replicating, you know, creating something with your partner that looks like you and acts like you and talks like you and thinks like you. And um, one of the most beautiful things about foster care is that idea of welcoming home a stranger, completely different. Um, and, you know, I, I had thought the stranger was, was Coco. She did not seem like a stranger at all. The stranger was her mother. That was who I had to learn how to love. But what an opportunity. Here is this woman who Everything in our society is designed to keep us apart, um, education and social class and addiction and um, 
religion and I mean every way you can think of we were we were different from one another and yet we loved the same girl and we had to learn how to love each other in order to love that girl well and that was such a profound awakening that shattered for me understandings of family understandings of boundaries understanding of limits understanding of of what it means to be in the presence of someone that scares you that might send your life into orbit <laughs> and yet you have to learn how to um love that person what does yeah. that look like you write so tenderly about coco's mom evelyn despite like right all these differences that you're naming painful history of addiction that she has the difficult relationships three kids who also weren't in her care and this seemingly impossible work of wanting to learn to love both things at the same time this that to love you know those like early uh, transitive property equations that we were taught to leave, like a equals b and b equals c I'm therefore what just thinking about them <laughs> we were like i love this baby i want to learn to have this like soul expanding um generous endless abundant love for this kid and therefore i need to figure out how to simultaneously root for her mom whose whose own actions may take apart the life that you have come to know and love. Yeah, it was it was a hard hard thing because I I understood I didn't know at first that Idaho where I live and where I was a foster parent was what's called a reunification state that the statistics here are in the 70% of wow. children are reunified with their biological parents. The national average is more around 50%. So I didn't know that, but it soon became clear to me that everything in the whole system was designed uh, to make sure that Coco went back to her biological mother. The first time I met Evelyn and the first time she met Eric and me. So think about this. <laughs> We're the strangers taking care of her child who she's just given birth to two weeks before. And we met her going through metal detectors in a courtroom, in a mm. courthouse. That was how they introduced us to one another. And we wheeled Coco through the metal detectors. And on the other side, Evelyn was there. Here's this woman who's given birth two weeks before whose body is still having signs of that. You know, I, I'm sure her breasts were still tender with milk. She wasn't allowed to give her baby. And she asked, can I hold her? And I hand this five pound baby girl to her mother in a courtroom who stands in a hallway next to a fake ficus plant yeah. and whispers into her baby's ear, I love you, 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 for the three hours that we wait in that hallway. Yeah. That was my first sign. This is not, this does not work the way that I thought it did. I'm complicit in a way I didn't understand I was. What does it mean to love this baby? What does it mean for me to want her to have the most beautiful possible life? And what does it mean for there to be a mother who also wants her, who had this child taken away from her by force, who's had terrible suffering in her life and is now showing the desire to get better so she can get her child back and how to hold those things at once. I love Coco. I want to keep Coco. I know that in order not to become a mean and bitter person, I have to also love her mother. How do you do both of those things? Yeah. Yeah. Just laughing when you said mean and bitter because you've got such a nice, you've got such a nice loving face. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> I 
it's a, it's, yeah, there is a mean and bitter person under there. You know, I mean, but that was, I, I have an amazing therapist um, who, who's, who basically slapped me around. You know, she said, I, I thought I was going to die. When it became clear to me that um, probably Coco was going to go back, I thought I couldn't survive it. I didn't want to survive it. Um, and she said that I had to like turn my mindset around 180 degrees. And instead of hoping that I could keep her and which meant that I was rooting against her mother, Evelyn, that I had to actually root for Evelyn, that I couldn't be a person who would wish harm on another person in order to get what I want. Mm. And I said, well, what if I am, you know, what if I already (laughs) am that person? And she said, you know, that's, that's not what we're after. You have to hope that she gets well, this person who's seen so much suffering. And she said that she said two things that stayed with me. One, uh, your life is not worth more than her life. And she said, this baby might save her life and you don't need your life saved. And so that began my real, it was a practice. It was like a brutal practice to learn how to be loving to her. And and I did do that. And we began to love each other. And our relationship is one of the most profound and one of the most heartbreaking relationships of my life. Just as a side note, you make such a good Methodist. You know, <laughs> my father-in-law is a Methodist pastor. It totally rubbed up on me. <laughs> it's like all love by doing. You're like, I don't want to, but I'm going to get there by sheer beautiful behavioralism. <laughs> 100%. When the court eventually ordered that Coco be reunited with her birth mother, it sounds like it was an unbelievably painful experience, like hearing the, not even ambivalence, but deep skepticism, like even in her social worker saying things like, well, that she wouldn't, she just wouldn't trust that Coco would be safe. I mean, that you had to pack up all of Coco's things and then, and let her go. That must have felt impossible. It was um, the hardest day of my life. It was exactly about two years and 10 days ago. And we had asked um, what the social worker said was, I wouldn't let her take care of my dog for an hour um, about Coco's biological mother, but she was going to reunify her anyway. She said, but that's not the rubric. Now, the rubric is minimal parenting ability, which is one step above do no harm. Um, So they had sped up reunification, even though all signs were pointing to the the fact that this was not a good idea. What's interesting about foster care, what's devastating about it is that when someone's child is in foster care, the parent is wrapped with all kinds of supports. You know, Evelyn had access to drug counseling. She had a mental health counselor. She had help with housing. She had help with employment help with her finances, help getting food. She had childcare, free childcare, because we had her child um, yeah. in our care. But the minute that a child is reunified, all those supports disappear, which oh, is just wow. like why it, it should yeah. be the beginning of, of wraparound services for families. You know, the whole reason we have foster care is because we have poverty, because we have racism, because we have um, structural oppressions of all kinds. If we People are always like, what do you think we should do to fix the foster care system? I'm like, end poverty, have affordable housing, have yeah. um, you know, living wages for people, make this a pro-family plus society, and then we won't have children in foster care for the most part. But um, we had been asked 
we had asked our social worker to be with us on the day that we were being asked to place Coco back in her mother's care. And um, she refused to come and she refused to let us go to court to make any statements. So she moved the reunification up to before the court date so that she could say we were no longer the foster parents. So we were no longer welcome in court. So we weren't allowed to come and speak or, or have any role in what happened next. Being the good divinity school students that Eric and I both are, we um, created a, a ritual around that day. Our friends collected children's books. Um, they built a children's book library for Coco. They thought, well, if she can't have you as her forever parents, then she can have these stories that will help light her way. We made this photo album of, of the first year of her life so that she would know, you know, she was loved and tended and celebrated and that we would always be her champions. We wrote a letter to Evelyn telling her how proud we were of, of what she'd done and the efforts she'd made to get well for her daughter. We brought clothes. I brought these pieces of rose quartz. I mean, we had this whole elaborate ritual, but we had to walk into a room, deliver all of those things, and then hand this child over that, that we'd been taking care of every day for almost a year. You know, it's some of those things which I know you know in your own life where you don't think you can do them, yeah. uh, but you have no other choice. You have to figure out how to walk through that kind of suffering. Yes. And we, we did it. You know, we did it with no institutional support. No, we had the, our community support, but we had no support from the social workers. And Evelyn had no support either. Yeah. It's brutal. I mean, it's, it's brutal. Yeah, there's some moments that are that are not moments. They're just like a cliff. Mm -hmm. That's perfectly said. There's some things too that we do because we know they're going to be okay. And for you, you had to do it knowing that it, you you couldn't you couldn't know if it would be okay. And and then soon you find out that she's that she's not actually doing well. Because I had worked so hard on my relationship with Evelyn, we we stayed in touch at first. You know, it was this funny reversal where I'd been the one that was texting photographs of Coco to her to say, you know, she has her first tooth or she, look, she's eating squash, <laughs> you know, we're going on a walk. I, I was documenting Coco's life for Evelyn. And then it was reversed where she was documenting her life for me. And we stayed in touch and um, Evelyn invited us to her first birthday party. And I went, Eric couldn't go. He couldn't look at photographs of her. He, he couldn't, it was too painful for him. Yeah. But I went and Evelyn let me hold Coco the whole time. It was really beautiful and profound role reversal. Mm. And Evelyn was actually the only person in the foster care system who acknowledged me as a mother to Coco. Oh. Right when it was very clear that she was going to be reunified, it was Mother's Day. And Coco was having her one of her first overnights with Evelyn on Mother's Day. And we met in that bank parking lot. And Evelyn gave me my first Mother's Day present that I've ever received, which was this little pink teacup with butterflies on it with the yellow rose planted inside. And she said, Happy Mother's Day. It was her her daughter who made me a mother. But soon after that birthday party, she she disappeared. She stopped responding to texts. Um, I couldn't find her. And I was calling uh, social workers. I was calling Child Protective Services. I was seeing all sorts of distressing things about what was happening um, from her friends and on Facebook, different information. And then she 
she went to another state that I'm not allowed to talk about. And so both Idaho and that other state were insisting that she was in the other place. And so mm. no one would do anything to find her. And I, I remember I called every week for weeks and months. I remember saying, can, can we issue an Amber Alert? Like yeah. here's a, it's, it's called a, a drug endangered child. This child is in danger. She can't speak. She's not in school. Um, nobody has eyes on her. Nobody knows where she is. And, and a social worker said to me, we can't issue an Amber Alert. She hasn't been kidnapped. She's with her mother. That kind of helplessness of not being able to find a child and not being able to work with any of the organizations that are supposed to help keep children safe. That was a kind of um, helplessness that I hadn't experienced uh, before. Um, She eventually did surface um, and was taken into foster care in that in that other state. But not released to you. It's madness. No, she was not released to us. Um, uh, we we fought for her. We had a lot of lawyers. Um, we still have lawyers. We're still fighting to try to bring her home. We do get to Zoom with her. That's a relatively recent development. And so she's um, two and a half now. And we Zoom and we wear funny hats. We have a frog hat and a <laughs> rabbit hat and um uh, octopus hat. And um, we've sent her a bunch of toys and we have the same toys. So we play together and um, she's giggly and delightful and she knows us. We have these beautiful weekly 30 minute Zoom sessions and then the screen goes dark and it's like losing her all over again. Yeah. Sarah, your story as in your love is what I mean by that. Cause love is a story, right? Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's how we how we got woven into each other. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. I, your um your life and your book are asking us to rethink that kind of way that we are, you know, enmeshed and mm-hmm. we hold each other up and despite what bureaucracy says, like in inextricable from each other. Mm-hmm. And that kind of longing and belonging just it like courses mm-hmm. through these pages. The kind of love you're describing is unbelievably costly, isn't it? I feel like to not love is more costly than to love. You know, people have asked me, I don't want to cry on your podcast, but I might, but people ask me like, knowing now, would you do it again? Um, And I know that they're trying to say, I I wish you didn't feel this grief, but I, I would do it again because I want to love Coco and I will love her for the rest of my life. And because you know, that when people say, I, I, I thought about being a foster parent, but I've always wanted children of my own. I think the, for me, all these children are our children. And so if not us, who, who's going to do it? Who, who's going to care for them? For me, the beauty of foster care, even in all its horror and all its bureaucracy and violence, is that it's that opportunity to practice what it looks like to be related to everyone or to be accountable for everyone. Um, You know, how often is it that you can get a phone call that says this person needs help? This person you don't need, no, needs help and love. Can you, can you be shelter? Can you be care? And sometimes we say yes, and it changes everything. There's always like the fear that it's just not going to be that whatever we have, if we're an island, that it won't be enough. I think what your life and 
and work and this kind of love um, calls us to is to say that the dream of love is to just not, is just to choose to not be the island. Mm -hmm. It's just to choose to believe that, yes, like we all run out, we all run low. And that's why, like, mm -hmm. and that's why we have to belong to each other. A rabbi once said to my parents that grief is something that we aren't meant to carry alone, that it's something we carry together. And it was something that my community carried together. So that sense of an island, it's impossible when you're going through an illness, when you're going through death, when you're going through um, loss, like we experienced with Coco, you, it's impossible to do it alone. You need people to shore you up. And that was, it was really interesting to be in this community. I was relatively new to this community and to be vulnerable in a way that I hadn't been vulnerable before. My friendships are deeper because of it. You know, yeah. they carried, they love Coco. They saw her as theirs too. They saw yeah. her as, as belonging to all of us. And, you know, we recently welcomed home a baby boy. We adopted a baby boy. He's oh. um, <laughs> two months old now. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And what's beautiful about that is that he, they helped carry our grief and now they're also carrying our joy that those yeah. things are side by side and they don't see the story as, Oh, now you have a baby. It's happy ending, you know, but they, they see it as like, Oh, we can carry, we carry your grief with you. And now we will carry this joy. Sarah, this is love on love on love. And I am so grateful. We got a chance to talk today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Love can break your heart. I think it's probably somewhere in the fine print. You just might not have scrolled all the way to the bottom to the terms and conditions. So here's a blessing for the kind of love that costs something. Blessed are you whose ability to love has crossed borders and ignores surnames, whose love advocates for the most vulnerable and holds hands all the way to the edge. You who know that this kind of life-expanding, family-expanding love will cost you something, maybe everything. Blessed are you whose heart has grown three sizes, regardless. You who push through the fear of intimacy, the fear of loss, the fear of all the unknowns, and love still. Blessed are we, loving well beyond our limits, loving when it doesn't make any sense, loving without any lifetime guarantees, loving when it might break our hearts. That is, of course, the best thing about you, your great big heart. work on the Everything Happens podcast and with the Everything Happens initiative is made possible because of our partners and generous donors, Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. And a huge thank you to my team who makes this work not only possible, but fun. Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Keith Weston, Gwen Hagenbotham, Katie Mangum, AJ Walton, Catherine Smith, Mary Jo Clancy, JJ Dickinson, and Jeb and Sammy. 
And if you'd like to be a human with me, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. I also have a weekly email that might be the right dose of love and courage you need. Sign up at katebowler.com newsletter. This is Everything Happens With Me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>